Anyway, my name is Nate Drake. I am uh, earning what's called a Master's of Theology up at Southeastern, as Pastor John said, in Theological Studies. And uh, we haven't actually talked about this a ton this weekend, but Jeremy Loki, the reason I ended up here is because Jeremy Loki was my middle school pastor when I was a very small person. And so that's where, that's the connection uh, to, to me showing up here all the way from there, from uh, back in Powder Springs, Georgia. Uh, so it's very sweet for that to come around full circle. Anyway, I, I want to talk about this morning uh, one of the most famous stories Jesus ever told. It's super famous. It ends up in uh, movies and narratives and books and all this stuff. And when people talk about the kind of story that, uh, G- that when it's in a movie or if it's in a book, when they talk about this specific kind of story, they tend to use the name that we gave it in the Bible when you hear of someone going far away from what they were supposed to be and then coming back, even outside of the Christian circle, you hear people say stuff like, oh, that's a prodigal son story, you know, when so, uh, you hear it all the time, even outside of it. And so I, it's just with us this morning to unpack that Ver, that, uh, that story this morning. So if you brought your Bibles with you, would you turn to Luke chapter 15? And we're going to look into that uh, together. Now, if you might know, Jesus is telling uh, a story, and we're just gonna, I, what I want us to do is just take it verse by verse and really listen to how Jesus is telling the story, because this is one of the most famous passages ever, and it's very easy to just jump straight to what we already think about the story before we've even gotten through the verses due to the familiarity of it. So if we could just go slowly through verse by verse, read a few verses, look up and talk about it. And I really just want us to hear Jesus tell the story, not us tell the story before we even hear it, just because we know it so well. So let's try to listen really carefully to what Jesus is saying. Luke chapter 15, uh, verses 1 and 2 say this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The two groups present are the tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is walking around, doing his ministry, healing the sick, raising the dead, giving sight to the blind, revealing that he is God and he has come to get humanity back on track, back in right relationship with God as God the Son himself in the flesh. And people are following him around trying to learn from him. And you've got the tax collectors and the sinners, and you've got the Pharisees, and you might know the Pharisees being teachers of the law, learned everything in the Bible, taught other people how to to live out what was in the Bible and thought very highly of themselves for it. And they were very concerned with scripture, though wrong, very concerned with scripture. And then you've got tax collectors and sinners who didn't, who didn't care at all about what was in the Bible and lived life however they were going to. And just, they were still Jewish people a lot of times, but they just weren't concerned with anything the Pharisees were. And the Pharisees see Jesus hanging out with them and talking with them and loving them. And they want to hear what Jesus has to say as well. And the Pharisees think to themselves, if this guy was actually a good Jew, he would know we don't hang out with those kind of people. If he was a good teacher, we, 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 dis, we just don't pay attention to what they're doing. They're not like a, one of us. We're a lot better than them. We actually follow the word of God and all that stuff. Jesus, what, what is he doing? And so Jesus, knowing their thoughts, dives into 
a parable. And notice in the next verses, it really, it says a parable, one, one singular parable that consists of three different stories that's going to step on these Pharisees' toes to say the least and put it back on them that Jesus has come for everybody. And that what he has to say is meant for the worst of the worst and the people who think they're the best of the best but are secretly actually the worst of the worst. So let's read uh, Luke 15, starting in verse 3 down to verse 7. So he told them this parable. Again, one, everything we're about to hear is one parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The first part of this parable of three stories that Jesus tells the Pharisees and the tax collectors in response to their attitude that they're grumbling that Jesus is hanging out with these tax collectors and these sinners is this very short story about a shepherd and a sheep. And this is where we really have to fight ourselves to listen to how Jesus is telling the story before jumping to who we think we are in the story. Because if we know the stories really well, you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, oh, I already know how this goes. I'm the sheep and Jesus is the shepherd. And so when I come back to Jesus, he's like coming after me and bringing me back. And that's real. And I'm not here to undo that this morning. I just want us to hear how Jesus is, is telling it so we can feel what Jesus is trying to get us to feel. Because if you're hearing the story out of the lips of Jesus for the first time, like the tax collectors and the sinners are, you don't have the whole book of Luke in front of you. And you don't have the whole New Testament explaining the Old Testament for you to really grasp it. All you have is what Jesus is telling you. And so if you're hearing Jesus tell this story for the first time, and he says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, you don't know yet how to plug yourself into the story. You don't know where he's going. You don't know that you're about to hear another story about a coin. You don't know that you're about to hear another story about a son that runs away. You just hear, what man of you having a hundred sheep? So think to yourself, just based on grammar, we're not playing with any fancy, deep theological ideas here, just based on grammar, if Jesus said, what man of you having a hundred sheep, and you don't know this story, who in the story do you think you are? You're the shepherd. You think to yourself, I'm the shepherd in this story. If Jesus says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if one runs away, do you not go off and find it? And so you're thinking to yourself, oh, yeah, if I was a shepherd, I absolutely would go after that sheep. And Jesus creates this very agreeable story where it's not very difficult to wrap your head around how if you're a shepherd and you lose one of your sheep, you're going to go find it. That makes a ton of sense. And then he pulls the switch in those last couple verses, and he says, okay, if you can wrap your head around that, multiply it by a billion, trillion, zillion, million, and that's what it's like when a sinner comes back and repents and comes back to heaven. That's the kind of celebration we have. And that's how we know to plug ourselves into the sheep, because Jesus gives us that switch at the very end, but he has you look through the perspective of the person who lost something first, 
Are you, are you with me? That, that's how, so you feel what the person who lost something felt, and then Jesus switches on you. Again, we don't, if we're listening to this for the first time, we don't have all the stories in front of us. We're just trying to hear it the way Jesus is telling it. So Jesus makes this really agreeable point with a shepherd and a sheep. He's going to do the same thing in another quick story right after it. Read with me in verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins... If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, Jesus makes a second very agreeable situation that if you're looking through the eyes of the person who lost something as Jesus directs them to, when he says, what man of you having a hundred sheep in this one long parable, and you hear, okay, yeah, if I was a shepherd, that makes sense. I'd go for that sheep. Now he says about this woman, wouldn't a woman who loses a coin, wouldn't she go through all this effort to make sure she finds this money? And it's putting you, when you're looking through the perspective of the person who lost something, the idea is you'd go, that would make a ton of sense. It would be very important for that woman to find that coin because shepherds eat and make their living off of their sheep and women need money for things. And so it's very important that they find that. And it's like, okay, yeah, I'm vibing with you, Jesus. I really understand those two situations and so that's pretty cool that if when you pull that switch at the end that there's joy over a sinner that comes back to heaven that's pretty cool because the the, the value in those things and those stories is pretty obvious like if you're thinking to yourself about my sheep or if that was my coin that makes a lot of sense but this is one long parable and so Jesus has set up two very agreeable situations, and he's about to expand on that situation in a much longer scenario that's going to drive this point home and show just how crazy and how dramatic and how deep what Jesus is talking about really is, just how, how deep and how wide and every word you've ever used for the love of God, how far that really goes. Because we're going to have a different story coming, but it's not things about that let you eat, and it's not your money. It's going to be a much more emotionally burdensome situation, but it's the same point. So let's read what we know as one of the most famous stories of all time. Let's dive into uh, the prodigal son. Just verse 11, just verse 11, it says this, there was a man who had two sons. Again, no theological roller coaster or gymnastics or anything. Just on, the, just on the plain English of that verse, there was a man who had two sons. Who is the subject of that story? It's the man. The man is the main character of that sentence. So before, what might be the habit to do is to jump straight into the question of, oh, are you the son that ran away? Are you the son that stayed? Are you any of these things? Jesus is having you look through the perspective of the person that lost something. And if we just slow down a second, we realize that the main character of the story is not either of the two characters I plug myself into. Are you following? 
the main character of the story is the man. And if you know the story, we know the man represents God and we're one of the two sons. And so when we read this story, we need to read this story like it's ultimately a story about God. And it's not, although I am in the story somewhere with one of the two sons, he opens it up very plainly with, there was a man with two sons. This is a story about a man. And Jesus entered us into the perspective of the shepherd, which man of you having a hundred sheep? Okay, yeah, I'd go after that sheep. Wouldn't it make sense for a woman to go after that coin? Yeah, it was. Now we're looking through the lens of this father. We're looking through the eyes of the Father, and Jesus is going to have us feel the things that the Father is feeling. There was a man with two sons. This is very important for hearing how Jesus is saying it. Very important for hearing what Jesus is trying to communicate. There was a man with two sons. Verse 12, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he spent everything, excuse me, and when he spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need, verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So the first thing that happens that we hear about, the first thing that happens to the man that has two sons, the first thing that happens to that guy is that one of his sons comes up to him and says, Dad, let's pretend that you're dead. And you just go ahead and give me everything that's coming to me when you're gone, and I'm out. And he goes and spends it all somewhere, and then he runs out of money. So then he, he hires himself out to someone in that far out distant country, and he's serving with pigs. And this is the first thing that happens to the man. And so anything we learn about this son is not because he's the main character. It's to, tell, it's to situate us through the eyes of the man because the people hearing this for the story for the very first time, they don't know to think to themselves, oh, that's me as the son. They don't have the whole canon of scripture. They didn't grow up in Sunday school. They're just listening to Jesus tell the story for the first time. And they were a shepherd in the first story. They were the woman in the second story. Now they're the man in this story. So when they hear this kid doing this to the father, they don't think to themselves yet, oh, that's me as the kid. They're thinking to themselves, man, if that was my kid. Man, if that was my kid. That's how Jesus is telling the story. And what happens is his son says, dad, let's pretend you're dead. Give me all the stuff. Come into me. I'm out. So we have this huge emotional distance between the son and the father. You have to be pretty separated from your parents emotionally to say, we're just going to pretend like you're dead. And then he takes everything that his dad gives him and he goes off to a faraway country and he squanders all of it. So now we don't just have an emotional distance between the son and the father, but we have a physical distance between the son and the father. And then that son runs out of money and he hires himself out to someone who's not in the Jewish nation and start serving with pigs. And if you read the Old Testament, you realize there's nothing worse than a Jewish person that hires himself out to someone who's not a Jew and works with pigs. And so now we got a cult, according to the Old Testament, now we got a cultural distance between the son 
and the Father. And the, the purpose of all that detail is to express to us just how far gone this son really is. Man, if that was my kid, man, if that was my kid, I'd understand why I'd want the shepherd, why the shepherd would want the sheep back. I understand why I'd want that coin back. But man, if that was my kid. When we read the story of the prodigal son, we're about to get to our very first point here. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Man, if that was my kid, I'd like to see him come crawling back. You know what I'm saying? I think, I think a lot of us would prefer to think to ourselves, if you already live in the grace of God, to think to yourself, no, nah, my kid is always my kid. My kid could do whatever, and I'm still going to love him no matter what he does or where she goes. Or that's still going to be my kid. But don't put yourself in the story. The Pharisees are hearing this for the first time, and the Pharisees love the Old Testament, and the Pharisees know Deuteronomy, and the Pharisees know what to do with sons who treat their dads that way, who embarrass their families, and it's not nice. I understand Jesus and why if I was a shepherd, I would want that sheep back. I understand why if I was a woman, I'd want that coin back. But if you're making me look through the lens of the father right now, and there's dignity on the line, and there's money on the line, and there's family name on the line, and there's respect, and there's distance like that on the line, I understand why I'd want the sheep. I understand why I'd want that coin. But I, for the life of me, cannot understand why I'd want that son back. When we read the story of the prodigal son, we have a clear picture of repentance. We have a clear picture of repentance. Because the prodigal son realizes to himself how he has nothing on the table to offer. He's not just a bad person. He's bad off. He's not just bad. He's bad off. He's got nothing, no sonship, no money, no name. He's crawling back with nothing. And this is Christian repentance. This is tough. This is not what's cool to preach anymore, is that when we come back to God, we come back with nothing. We come back with no sonship, no credibility, nothing of value, nothing at all that would make God, that would make anybody think anything of us other than we're coming back as we are. And it's the Pharisees feeling everything that the man would be feeling if they were that man. I cannot understand why I'd want that son back. And yet the son is crawling back with absolutely nothing to leverage, and that's what puts the man in the perfect position to be the main character. And we're hearing, what is our main character, the man, going to do? Because the Pharisees are feeling what the father what they'd be feeling if they were the father, and Jesus has a point to make, and that's what makes these next few verses so incredible. And the son is coming, crawling back, and we're feeling it. Verse 20, and he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion 
and ran and kissed him. Mm. When you feel, when you look through the lens of the person that lost something, as Jesus directs you to, which man of you having a hundred sheep, the woman who lost a coin, there was a man with two sons. When you're feeling what it feels when you look through their eyes and this son comes crawling back and you're thinking to yourself, I get why I'd want the sheep. I get why I'd want the coin. I do not understand why I'd want that son back. When he squandered my name, he squandered my life. He squandered my inheritance that I was going to give him. That's what makes the father running to the son so amazing because the weight of the story in the prodigal son the weight of the story in the prodigal son is not in the difference or the decision. It's not in the decision of the son to either stay with the pigs or return to the father. Because then it's all about us again. It's about our ability to pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and fix our relationship before God. If we just do that, and that's not the gospel. The weight of the story in the prodigal son is in the difference between the way the Pharisees want to handle people so far removed from the Father and the way that Jesus came to handle people so far removed from the Father. That is what the Father running accentuates and highlights and brings out is the difference between the way you cultural religious leaders want to handle sinners and the way I'm telling you I came to handle them is I'm running to them. People want to come crawling back, I'm going. You're feeling every emotion that I would feel, and you're kicking them to the curb, I'm heading straight to them. I'm not even letting them get all the way to me, I'm running out to them. And that is why when we read the story of the prodigal son, we have a clear picture of grace. We have a clear picture of repentance in the, in the son who has nothing in his own to leverage. And that's what puts the father in the perfect position to be the clear picture of grace. Because there is nothing in a normal person that would make you want that son back. And yet he is running off to him. And I, again, a lot of us might want to think that we wouldn't be like the Pharisees. But unfortunately, I have to tell you that if anybody else's salvation was in your own hands to measure up what you think qualifies as being a dignified or worthy person of love and respect, you would make the same decision. But I'll say, friends, some encouragement that if our salvation, if my or your salvation was in the hands of anyone other than Christ, we'd be gone. And so let it bring us to a very humbling and very reverent position that our salvation is in the only being who contains and is such grace. When we read the story of the prodigal son, we have a clear picture of grace. I didn't even finish reading the passage. The son says, and the son said to him, verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. 
The father doesn't just run to this son. He restores him entirely into his family. He said, yeah, you were dead and gone, but I'm running out to you and I'm bringing you back and I'm giving you everything you need to be my son because that's what you are. This is the most polar opposite response from what Jesus is curating in the hearts of the Pharisees that when he presented two very easy, agreeable situations up front and said, I'm telling you, I celebrate when sinners come back. And they said, cool, God, it. Yeah, it's a sheep. I'd want it back too. And he said, yeah, there's a coin that was lost and she found it. It's like, and, and that's what it's like to celebrate when sinners come back. And they're like, yeah, cool. We got it. Coins are valuable. And Jesus said, there's this actual person that represents actual people and he was lost. And now we're celebrating when he comes back. And it's like, whoa, no, Jesus, I don't really get that. And Jesus said, yeah, that's the difference between me and you is because you don't really get what it means to celebrate when sinners return. And I'm here to show you what that looks like. When we read the story of the prodigal son, we have a clear picture of grace. But we still have one more sign. There is a man with two signs. Our main character, God. Two signs. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew sorry he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant and he said to him your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound but he was angry and refused to go in his father came out and entreated him but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, he was devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive he was lost and is found. We had a clear picture of repentance in the sun coming, crawling back. We had a clear picture of grace in the father running to him and reinstating him into the family. And when we read this second son, we have a clear picture of relationship. A clear picture of relationship. The son comes home, they're throwing a party, the other son is out in the field, and just, just notice this, because really the, the, the issue, the, the way of plugging it in within the story that many people rightfully note is that the tax collectors from the beginning of the story represent the, the son that physically ran away, and then the, the Pharisees represent the son that's still at home, and I think that's really helpful, uh, because the son that the son that's still at home, he's still far off. I don't think Jesus' intention is to say that this son is also like saved or okay or good because there's a party going on and this son is way out in the field and he doesn't even go into the party. He calls somebody else and says, hey, what, what's going on over there? Tell me, I, I don't want to go, but just tell me what's going on over there. 
So, oh, great, yeah, your son is home, and we're having a party. And he says, why on earth would he get a party? I'm out here working in the field all the time, and he's out there squandering his life away and my father's life away. What is going on? But we have a clear picture of relationship here because both the son that ran away and the son that was at home approached their father with the same position, in the same mindsets, and praise the Lord that the father doesn't listen to either of them. Because the son comes crawling back and says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The older son says, I've been here the whole time working in your fields, serving you. And both of them come to their father with the position, Dad, look at what I've done. Look at what I've done. Younger son says, Dad, look at what I've done I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the other one says, Dad, look at what I've done. I've served you this whole time. I deserve a party. So based on what the son that ran away did, he says, Dad, don't even call me your son. And the dad is like, no, I'm, I'm calling you my son. And the other son's like, look at what I've done. I deserve a party. And he's like, no, you really don't get it. Because the entire time, the father is not concerned with what either son has done. The father is concerned with their relationship with him. It's like, I'm glad you're back, son. Come on, let's get the party started. He's like, son, you're not really here. You're out in the field working, and you're still trying to get my approval through everything you're doing, and that's still the wrong message. Let's go celebrate that your son and I, that your brother and I are back together. And I just, <laughs> I just love what maybe, maybe a lot of us need to hear this morning. I know I need to hear it over and over again, is if you read the son, when the son comes back to the father, I love it. It's so sweet. He says, Dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Uh, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then in his little rehearsal beforehand, he says, make me like one of your servants. But when he gets to his father, his father cuts him off. And the son says, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the dad is like, all right, bring the fattened calf, get the robe, get the ring, all that stuff. And here's why I really think why. I really think why is because sinned against heaven and against you, I think the father was like, yeah, that's right, you have. Is it unworthy to be called your son? Yeah, that's also true. But I think the dad cuts him off because make me like one of your servants, not up to you. Not your call. Yeah, sinned against heaven and against earth, true. Unworthy to be called my son? That's also true. What are you going to be when you come back to my house? You're going to be my son. Why? Because it's not your call, not based on what you do. It's your relationship with me. And I'm telling you that if you're my son and you're coming back and you're repenting, you're going to throw a party. You're going to be at the table. You're going to be everything I'm telling you you're going to be, not what you're telling me you're going to be based on what you've done. Thrown your life away, served in what you think is serving the Lord forever, but still distant. None of that is counting. It's your relationship with the Father. And that's the prodigal son. Really, that's the man in the prodigal son. That's the man with two sons. Friends, I wonder how many of us need to come back to that this morning. <laughs> I wonder... It's one of the easiest things to fall back into. But I actually want to tell you this morning that in Jesus, that, the, <laughs> that God actually gives you everything. Get this. God gives you everything you need to not be either of the sons. 
being one of the sons is for lost people. But if, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you're at the table, you're at the party, you've got the fattened calf killed for you, you've got the ring on your finger, you've got the robe around you, you are back as a son or daughter of God. That's where you're at. And friends, if you're not, then I want to tell you that the Father is running to you this morning in the form of God has stepped in as Jesus. And he lived the life you and I were supposed to live, sinless, walking with the Lord, in right relationship with God, in every way you and I were supposed to be. And in sacrificing himself on the cross, dying for our sins, lifted up, bearing the weight of sin and death, and everything wrong between humanity and God, bearing it in himself, being vindicated in his resurrection to new life so that when you and I put our faith in him, that is us either as the son who ran away running up to the father or us as the son in the field going to join the party. When we put our faith in Jesus, that is us as either of the sons being like, oh, it's all about my relationship with my dad. That's what we're saying is we're saying, I'm, I'm not fixing everything that's ever gone wrong in my life. We're saying, I'm fixing what's wrong between me and the only person that matters, and the person that brings me back to the table, and the person that puts me in the family, and that is, that is God himself. And friends, I want to invite you to that this morning, to put your faith in the man who has two sons, who is Jesus himself. And to, to let go of either the guilt of everything you've ever done against God or the pride of everything you think you've accomplished to feel like you don't need to have that kind of repentance and to lay it at the feet of Jesus in that Christian depiction of repentance that we have that says, God, I got nothing to offer. You are in perfect position to be the hero and the main character of grace and everything because I got nothing to leverage on my part. I got nothing to offer in my own part. It's literally your response that's going to make or break me being in your family or not. And God's response is full send, be like, I'm running to you when you're coming back. Every time for everyone. And I want to invite you to that this morning. I'm going to pray for us to, to close, and I just want to thank you guys again for letting me worship with you guys this weekend. It's been an honor, and I love uh, your church so much. So would you guys bow with me? Father, thank you for letting us worship you and love you, God. Thank you for letting us be a part of your family. Thank you for bringing us back in and giving us a seat at your table. God, I pray for any hearts in here <laughs> that either just need to hear that again as a Christian, like myself and probably so many people. God, I pray that that would be reflected in our worship here in the next few minutes, God, that that truth of being brought back and you running to us as Jesus would just reinvigorate our hearts, Lord. And I pray for anyone that doesn't know you, either served here a long time, or brand new to all of it, God. Either way, I pray that you 
bring us back to right relationship with you because that's what it's all about. Not the pride of our accomplishments, not the guilt of all our failures and sins, but being in right relationship with you. Thank you for providing that in Jesus. Thank you for that you're still changing hearts. Thank you that you're still going after lost sheep. You're still finding lost coins and you're still bringing sons back. I pray that you do that this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.